Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and we've got a bit of a different format to the episode today. It's just me, but there is an interview coming up. But I thought I'd start off with me sightings. I've had a busy few weeks. Uh, I've been out badger watching a couple of times, which has been great. Okay, the mammals, but you know, the badgers. It's always lovely to see them. Um, I've had a trip to Kent. I've seen some Duke of Burgundy butterflies. Well, I saw one, but it was worth it because I got to see some dotted bee flies finally, which is a new species for me. After visiting the Duke of Burgundy site, I headed over to a place called Stobmarsh, which is in Kent near Canterbury, a really lovely wetland site. I was hoping for some dragonflies and hobbies. I did see one dragonfly, but I couldn't see what species it was. But I did find some variable damselflies too, uh, which are the first ones in the UK in 2020, we believe. So that's quite nice. Back at home in my garden, uh, the pond is just overflowing with tadpoles as usual. My bee hotel is starting to wake up, well, I say starting to wake up yesterday, it was actually buzzing with red mason bees. But the biggest surprise was the peregrine falcon that flew over my garden quite low and with a starling screaming from its talons. So that was rather cool. I had the camera in my hand, but I was so shocked I was too slow to react. And it flew behind the roof, but both the back of my garden and then the front garden when I ran out the front before I could get a shot. But uh, amazing to see. And a nice little milestone for the year for me. Um, I saw my first scorpion fly as well, which are ravical insects, which will be in a future episode. Now, before we move on to the news, I need to say a thank you to our Buy Me A Coffee donors. So that's Tom Bradford and the Twitter handles, which have all got, not their full names, are at Aaron J. Morning, at Tosh Martin, at HWAB Podcast. That's Rachel from Hidden Wings and Bloodlust Podcast. And Nikki. So thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate your... Uh, contribution to getting things going and i think a lot of that money is going to end up going to our editor as a thank you who's probably going to find out through me (laughs) sending him through this broadcast when he edits it so that's great i've got to save an extra big thank you for heidi hutton who has become or has the honor i should say um our first member on buy me a coffee so thanks so much heidi the uh the constant income that gives will, will really help. And if we get a few more together, hopefully we'll be able to sort of invest in some better microphones and stuff eventually and uh, keep Oscar on uh, so we can pay him. And uh, he's, he's working for basically nothing at the moment. So I'm going to say a big extra thank you to Oscar as well while I'm here. But we'll move on to the news. Um, we'll start off with, well, I'm afraid it's a bit of a downer as quite often wildlife news is. Um, there's a study that's just come out that shows that pesticides are in fact harmful to soil creatures. So it's not exactly rocket science, I suppose. If you put pesticide on the soil, it's going to seep in and you know, pesticides are designed to kill invertebrates. But they have done a study and they've reviewed 400 other studies and the effects on non-target invertebrates are typically pesticides are targeting pests on the leaves and stuff. And Nathan Donnelly at the Centre for Biological Diversity in the US said, uh, beetles and springtails have enormous impacts on the porosity of soil that's how much the water percolates in, and are really getting hammered. And earthworms are definitely getting hit as well. So not great news for our soil, which is fairly important for us growing food, which I hear we need. But slightly more positive, uh, Dr. Sirian Sumner, who's at Woman on Twitter, and her colleagues published another review paper on wasps and proved what useful organisms they are. So if you listen to social wasp episode this won't be any surprise but they demonstrated how they're used for as parasites of our pests predators of our pests biological indicators so they show how healthy the ecosystem is they're also very important pollinators and decomposers um, as well as as which was a surprise to me seed dispersal they help with so they help spread seeds around so yeah they're very uh, useful they, they call these things ecosystem services is the uh, 
current sort of buzzword for it, but they're basically very useful for us. Although, you know, wildlife shouldn't have to be useful to us to exist. But yeah, maybe that would help counteract some of the negative attitudes we have towards them. Next story I'm going to talk about is, if you listen to this podcast news sections at all, you'll know all about how water companies are helping to destroy our rivers by releasing pollution in the form of sewage into them and the environment agency not doing very much about it well it's not just our rivers now uh, southern water have decided to set up a desalination plant so that's one of these plants that uses loads of energy to take the salt out of water and then we use the water for tap water is the idea so drinking water and stuff like that and the hampshire and isla white wildlife trust have urged them to not do this they want to set it up in forley which is actually in the new forest national park now, the plant itself would take 75 million litres of seawater every day from the Solent, which is the sea between Isle of Wight and Hampshire, for those who don't know, um, and converted that into tap water during times of drought. Now, they say this is very energy hungry, which it is, um, and very expensive. So that's probably going to put money on everyone's bills and, as well. Um, and it's the sort of thing you tend to get in places like Dubai and Australia, where they've got water shortages. Now, there's a few issues with this, environmentally speaking. First of all, obviously, they're sucking water out. You're going to get sea creatures in that. The bigger ones will get stuck on the filters, which could harm or kill them. And the smaller stuff's going to pass through this filter. And obviously, the desalination process is going to harm them. But this is a bit that shocks me. After the seawater's gone through, they obviously end up with water that is extremely salty because they've taken most of the water out and the salt's got left behind. So you get this super salty saline brine where all the salt and chemicals and heavy metals are concentrated really heavily and that's just dumped back into the sea. And you can imagine that's going to have some pretty nasty effects on creatures. So those who remember your A-level biology and osmosis, it's basically going to totally mess up the body chemistry of anything that comes into contact with super high salty if you put a freshwater fish in salt water it dies it's the same if you put a marine fish in super salty water now the wildlife trust point out that 2.9 million litres of water are lost every day in the uk or in england and wales i should say just through leaky pipes and they suggest that maybe the water company should invest in fixing that before they start sitting up some environmentally damaging and very expensive desalination plant. But a bit of good news for a fish called the Twite Shad. Now, if anyone listens to Jack Perks's podcast or has been on his uh, YouTube, you might be familiar with this fish. It's actually one of the herring, and it migrates up our freshwater rivers. But unfortunately, like a lot of these migratory fish, all these weirs and stuff we've built are seriously hindering their ability to do that and limiting their breeding opportunities and feeding opportunities. On the River Severn, there's a new project to put a load of bypasses around these weirs to allow the fish to move up. So it's not just the shad, it's also lampreys, eels and salmon. And this sort of thing has been done before, but they're doing it on an even grander scale now, I believe. So yeah, that's, that's all good news. Back to the uh, bad news, I'm afraid. There was a story in the news recently from the 6th of May. A couple of photographers were visiting Titchfield Canal and a dog was observed chasing a young roebuck, so that's a male roe deer, and biting at its rear end and forcing it to jump over a barbed wire fence. Um, the photographers did try and stop the dog, but they couldn't find the owner, they couldn't stop the dog, and the deer sadly ended up with two broken legs, a serious wound to its rump, and it had to be put down. And the Hampshire police issued a statement that police attended, and the deer was dispatched humanely by police to prevent any further unnecessary suffering. 
Officers will be making further inquiries and will be speaking to the dog owner. Well, hopefully I'll be doing one just speaking to them, but um, I won't hold my breath. But on the subject of dogs and deer, the compulsory dogs on leads has come into force in Richmond and Bushy Park in London. Those that have been listening will have heard the non-stop stream of stories about deer being attacked by dogs and chased by them. There was a case, I think we mentioned it on the podcast, it might have been in the bit where we didn't do any news, where some, I think it was a 12-year-old boy, got trampled by deer when dogs were chasing them and the deer panicked and ran over him. had to be taken to hospital. So it's not just the deer that are suffering from it. But the statement from the Royal Parks was they've had 55 reported incidents of dogs chasing deer since August 2020, which is when they allowed dogs off leads again. So that's 90 in the past year. That's just the ones that reported. So you can imagine how many might happen and don't get reported, especially early in the morning and stuff. But if deer have had a bad few weeks, the bird of prey in this country have had an awful, even by our standards. I mean, I think we said it before, if we actually covered every bird of prey um, persecution incident, we'd just have our own podcast just on that. Uh, we wouldn't be able to cover anything else. Um, we've had a red kite that was died after it was shot in Cheltenham in March. Another hen harrier with a satellite tag has mysteriously disappeared. When it was flying towards, I'll give you five seconds to guess which area of the country... Yep, North Yorkshire, the North York Moors, the Bermuda Triangle for birds of prey. So, yeah, it's heading southeast straight towards it, and then, beep, the transmitters that don't just suddenly stop, suddenly stopped. The Peregrines in Clee Hill. Now, for those that are familiar with rat persecution will know that area. They found a pigeon laced with poison and nearby a dead female peregrine. The male of the pair is missing and presumed dead too. And this area has not only had a record of peregrines going missing, it's been du- this method has been found to be used in 2010, 2011, 2015, 2017 and now 2021. At least a dozen peregrines have been poisoned in that area that way. And that's out of a population of 40 in the whole Shropshire. Now, <laughs> got to be careful here because I don't want to be pointing fingers too much. But the Rapture Alliance, which is a group of pigeon fanciers, have in the past been very vocal about asking for, asking or demanding that protection for bird of prey are removed because they're claiming that the birds of prey are eating their prized pigeons. Now, there's quite a lot to dispute that. If you look at the studies that have been done on this it's i can't remember the exact numbers but it's not even one in ten i don't believe are taken by bird of prey these pigeons just get lost i mean there's a reason there's hundreds of pigeons in our town centers they fly into power lines and telegraph lines and windows and all sorts of things eaten by cats sometimes you know it's it's a dangerous world out there and you know that's what happens and I did a very quick Google. I did Shropshire and Pigeon Fancier. And in 2015, there is a couple of Pigeon Fanciers literally just up the road demanding that protections on sparrowhawks and peregrines are removed or they're allowed to control them in some way. So uh, I'll let you draw your own conclusions to, um, you know, someone with access to a pigeon uh, trying to poison the peregrines. Although, you know, I'm not saying anything definite, uh, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions. And perhaps the most shocking thing of all was the osprey nest. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard of this, but at 9pm on the 30th of April, we know the exact time because the camera went with it, there was an osprey nest in Wales um, on one of these artificial platforms and it was cut down with a chainsaw. Someone took the trouble to get a chainsaw, went out probably in a boat and chopped down the nest platform that ospreys were nesting on. So, yeah, (laughs) what can I say on top of that? I mean, there's now a £3,000 reward um, for any information leading to prosecution um and there was which you know 
puts a bit of a, a nice line in on it. £10,000 was raised for the Wildlife Trust that were monitoring this pair. And they do appear to be trying to nest again on another platform. So fingers crossed they'll, you know, they'll be happy ending to this. But I mean, it's pretty brazen to go out and just chop down a watch nest with a chainsaw. I mean, someone must know who did it. Let's hope that um, they eventually come forward. But that's all a bit sad and not very cheerful. Our main part of our program today, or episode, wherever you want to put it, is me going into the field and looking for some field crickets. Um, it was a great day out on RSPB Farnham. And right at the end of the day, I sat down and interviewed the warden. And here's the interview now. Everybody. Welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast, our first ever on-site one. So this may be full of wind noise and you can't hear a word I'm saying, so we'll <laughs> find out soon enough. But I have with me, I have Mike with me, who is a warden here at... RSBB Far- Farnham Heath. Oh, yeah. There you go. So I'm glad you said that because I had not totally forgotten there was a reserve for a split second there. So today we've been relocating field crickets, which are... Well, would you like to explain what a field cricket is? Okay, well, field crickets are one of Britain's most endangered species. There's only eight places in the whole of the UK where you can find field crickets, all in southern England, all south of the Thames, in fact. Farnham Heath is one of those. We've got one reasonable population on part of the site, but what we needed to try and achieve was to get a second population going um, as an insurance policy. So that if anything happened to that first population, you know, Heath fire whatever, um, we still had a backup, a second population somewhere else on site. So what we've been doing as part of the HLF funded Back From The Brink project is taking a few crickets from that reasonably successful population and bringing them over to a different part of the reserve in order to get that population kick-started so we'll end up with more than one hopefully secure field cricket population on the reserve and that's the work we've been doing this afternoon. Oh, excellent. So this is going on on other sites as well, isn't it? It's also been going on at RSPB Pulborough Brooks, and we've been taking crickets from um, a different site there, because at the moment we don't have any crickets on Pulborough Brooks, so we've been taking crickets from one of the other populations, just small numbers, I think they caught something like 17 crickets this morning, um, and then they were translocated to a site of RSPB Pulborough Brooks, but because we've already got a population established here, all we're doing, if you like, is sort of redistributing crickets around the reserve. So we, we caught a few, caught 11, and we just brought them out and released them on a bit of heath, oh, about 200 yards to my right yeah, as we sit here. So I've, I've been here when we were looking for them, and it's, it's quite an interesting technique to uh, catch them in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we always call it cricket tickling, but essentially, first of all, you find the burrow, which isn't easy because... Mm. They're not the easiest of things to find. But then you find the burrow and then you take a bit of grass or a reed, a rush rather, or something like that, and you just gently feed it into the burrow um, as far as you can, right down to the bottom. And then when you pull it out again, very slowly, if it's got an occupant, the cricket will very often follow the bit of grass or the rush out of the burrow, presumably just to make sure it's gone. Um, And then you quickly catch it, stick it in a box, and bring it across. So it's all terribly scientific. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. nothing but high so technology it's today. It's very high really tech. Was, so basically, yeah. uh, a bit of grass, burrow, boom, catch, box. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's so, sort of thing that many of us have been training for since we were very little. That's what I went to. That's what I went to university for four yeah. years. <laughs> you know, 
So I could stick a bit of grass down a burrow and basically torment invertebrates. But it does actually have a very serious kind of ecological yeah. point because you know there, there are only eight places where you can find field cricket. They are still um, an endangered, a very much, very much an endangered species in Britain. So if we can get more populations established, more secure populations, yeah, that just basically you know helps to guarantee its future in the UK. Yeah. So. The habitat, is that the reason they're so rare, that the habitat's not quite there in it's, places? It's a combination of things. Firstly, they've always had a very restricted very restricted range. Mm. Essentially, it's been West Sussex, Surrey, and a little bit of Hampshire. Mm. Um, I mean, Gilbert White wrote about them in Natural History of Selborne, so they were in that sort of eastern edge um, of Hampshire. But there's always a very restricted range, which didn't help. And then combination, mostly it's habitat loss. They like yeah. sort of acid grassland, lowland heath, that kind of environment. And, you know, we've lost, what, 75% of our heaths over the last 150, 200 years, yeah. which hasn't helped. And very often it was the grassier heaths that were slightly, slightly less infertile, is probably the best way to put mm. it, rather than slightly more fertile. Um, they were the first ones to get improved yeah. for agriculture. So the poor old cricket got absolutely hammered. They used to be in this part of the world, up until the 1950s, there was a field cricket colony at Frensham Little Pond, which is only about 500 metres from the southern end of the reserve. Um, unfortunately, the last private owner of Frensham Little Pond, a guy called Colonel Atherton, built a car park on top of them. Um, oh. Which is that the big car park by the lake? No, it's not. He, when, when he owned it, there was a smaller car park um, um, on the other side of the lake. Um, yeah, he basically built a car park on top of the field cricket colony. <laughs> oh dear! Which again didn't help. No. So by the mid 80s, there was just one site in the whole of the UK for field cricket, and there were less than a hundred individuals. So we came that close to losing field cricket um, as, a, as a UK species. So since then, there's been a lot of work done. I mean, I've been involved in field cricket work for, oh, blimey. Yeah, I won't tell you how long I've been working on field cricket, <laughs> but it's been a very long time. Um, and so we're now at the very happy situation where we've got eight reasonably decent, robust populations, which is brilliant compared to one, but eight is still a very small number. Yeah. You know, and I doubt that there's more than more than a couple of thousand, which yeah. again is better than less than a hundred. Yeah, but it's But still, it's not a lot, is it? Yeah, that's still quite fragile, isn't it? I imagine, yeah. you know, a few, few badly placed fires. Yeah, exactly, could be, a, few, uh, a few bad heath fires and we could be in very serious stuck when it comes to uh, field cricket. So that's why it's important that we get these new populations, these new secure populations established. So that's what we're doing here, that's what we're doing at Pulborough. And I say it's all part of the Back From The Brink project, which is a yeah. massive heritage lottery funded project that's just coming to an end now. But it was aimed at, well, says it all, says it all on, the, on the tin really, it's about bringing back endangered species from the brink of extinction in the UK. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, James on the podcast yep. oh, a few months ago, so yep. if you go back to the uh, those I can't which episode it is now, I've my head, yep. head back to that one, you should be able to find it quite easily. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting project, there's yeah. a lot, lot of good species There's been involved. a lot of good stuff done. So the field crickets themselves, they, they live in a burrow, as we've mentioned yep. already. So they're one of the true crickets, I believe, Yeah, they? they're true crickets, they're not, they're not grasshoppers or bush crickets, they're, mm. they're true crickets. So that's grillidy, I think, is, the, yeah. is yeah. the science for it. But yeah, so both sexes make a burrow. But the males sit at the entrance to their burrow and they make a really nice little chirrupy noise. It's, it's a brilliant noise. I really like it, which is why I 
been involved with them for ages. Is it uh, similar to the, because um, people might have been in like a reptile shop with the crickets in there. Is it it's similar very similar, it's very yeah. similar. Um, it's a similar species as it's well. It's a very it? closely yeah. related species, it's the house cricket by and large that is um, fed to, to reptiles. Mm. So again it's same genus I think, it's a gryllus. So it's a very similar sort of noise but it is really lovely to actually be out on a heath on a nice warm summer's evening because if, if the weather's warm enough they'll sing all through the night as well. Um, so you come out in the evening and there's crickets chirping, night jars chirping, woodcock flying around. Yes, it's all right really, I can cope with that. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to come and bother you yeah. in a couple of weeks and yeah, come I, and I would, that. It sounds I really would, good. Yeah, but as I say, they should, be, they should start calling in a couple of weeks mm. and then they'll call right the way through probably to about the end of June. Yeah, and something I noticed today is they're, um, for crickets, they're pretty rubbish at jumping, aren't they? Yeah, they don't, they run. They, yeah, run, they run more than jump. They, if, you look at, if you actually look at them up close, they're not like grasshoppers who've got really massive hind legs with big muscular sort of thighs so they can leap. I mean, these things have evolved basically to dig, first yeah. and foremost, and secondly to, to run. Um, so they don't jump much at all. Having said that, one of the little blighters I caught today was jumping about all yeah, over the place. He was, but, wasn't he? Yeah. But generally speaking, yeah, they, they, they run rather more than, uh, than oh, leap. Yeah, so what, are they eating plants or are they... Because a lot of crickets eat other vegetables. Yeah, no, um, field crickets are almost entirely vegetarian. Oh, right. Say almost entirely vegetarian because very occasionally they will take a bite out of, out of, um, out of a passing insect. But almost entire, but more than 90% of their diet is, is vegetable material, mostly grass. Oh, right. oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so um, are there plans to sort of expand the programme at all? Or? Well, we'll see how it goes first. As I say, the, the main population is, is doing okay. Um, so we want to see how this, this translocated population does. Hopefully they'll get established and once they get going, then they shouldn't really need anything else no. from us. Brian, the habitat's good. They should be fine. Um, obviously, you know, we'll need to do a certain amount of habitat tweaking for them, but we do that for a whole range of other species on the site anyway. Mm. They've they are very much, very much like woodlark in terms of their mm. habitat requirement. And since woodlark's already one of our target species for the reserve, essentially we've got we've got reasonable amounts of the reserve that is also in good nick yeah. for, for field cricket. So I'm hopeful that we won't need to do too much else. But if we have to move a few more about, well, you know, yeah. maybe we will. Yeah, because that's um, it's not it's not an unprecedented thing in this country. I mean, they've done it with rafts, fen rafts, haven't yep. they? And uh, right. walk by cricket as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, it's a proven yeah, it works. Effort, it so. works. So you know, let, let's uh, let's give it a go if we have to. Obviously, it's always better if you can provide more habitat so the population can expand naturally. Yeah. But. You know, it's particularly in the southeast of England where land's so expensive, that's not yeah. always possible. So sometimes you have to take take the species to the habitat rather yeah. than bring the habitat to the yeah, species. Yeah, because the, the, the way conservation is trying to go, which is good, is to try and link up these habitats, yeah. but unfortunately if there's a town in the way, For something like a field cricket, which, mm. you know, they don't hop, as we've discussed, mm. they don't fly, mm. they walk. Yeah. They've got tiny wings, haven't they? Yeah, they, they, they can't bats. fly. So uh, uh, adult field cricket is about yay big. Yeah takes it a long time to walk any distance yeah. you know it, it ain't going to get far um, if it comes to a river well what's it going to do you yeah. know so they don't they don't move around much and they're quite specialized in their habits as well yeah, so they it are. doesn't help so i think for field cricket we probably will always be thinking about mm. translocation having said that the population of the southern part of the reserve mm. i mean it's now spread to our neighbors land to the east our neighbors wow. land to the west they've managed to cross one road all by themselves um, which came as a big surprise to me because yeah. I was just 
wandering Nature about. not reading the book again. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I was just wandering around and I thought, that's a field cricket, what's that yeah. doing here? Um, but yeah, it, they'd managed to cross. Okay, it's not the world's busiest road, no. but when you're only that long, a, you know, it's, it's still a, a fair old distance yeah. to cross even a minor B road. But they've managed to do it and they've found a little patch of suitable habitat. So they will spread, but even so, you know, as you say, if there's a town in the way, there's a river or major road, the only way to get them past that is, you know, in a box, really. All right, so the future is looking reasonably good. Yeah, the future's looking a darn sight better now than it was in, say, I don't know, 1986, yeah. you know, when they were down to less than 100 individuals. Yeah. You know, this is an emerging success story. Yeah. Yeah, it's still, I'm still sort of clutching wood before I describe it as a success story, mm. but it's in a much better position than it used to be. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, I think that's a good, good place to finish. So that's okay. Good. Well, thank Fantastic. you very much for talking to us, Mike. And, no uh, problem. Yeah, hope to see you again in a couple of weeks again. To yeah. See some calling. Excellent. Cheers, thank you okay. very much. Cheers. No worries. See you later, guys. hope you enjoyed that interview i found it very interesting they're fantastic little insects these field crickets and a big thank you to the rsvb for letting me come along and to mike for showing me around and all the other staff and volunteers for being so welcoming and a big thank you to james as well for organizing the trip to farnham and hopefully i'll be able to go and see some more of the back from the brink project at a later date well that's it for me this time guys a bit of a shorter episode but hopefully the next one will be a bit longer We've got the 50th episode coming up as well, which is going to be somewhat chaotic, to put it mildly. Um, and I'll tell you more about that another time. So that's it for me. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.